Well done. <laughs> well, welcome once again. If you would grab your Bibles and open to 1 Thessalonians, which may be a table of contents kind of book for you. You may have to dig around a little bit to find that. 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we're going to wrap up today this practice series on community that we've been in for the last month or so. Um, and we've been kind of stepping into this idea of what it means for us to practice the way of Jesus. Not just knowing about Jesus, but practicing the way of Jesus. Doing the things that Jesus uh, has called us to do. And community is one of those things. On your way in, on the tables outside, you may have noticed the practice guides are still out there. And so if you haven't yet grabbed one of those, let me encourage you to grab one of those. And you may be saying, we're at the end of the series. Why would I grab a practice guide? Because we're wrapping up and moving on. Well, the thing with this practice guide, as well as any of the practice guides that we have with all of our practice series, they're not tied to a specific message as much as engaging the practices of Jesus. So if you're at the tail end and you're saying, I haven't started anything, there's five weeks of practice for you or five different activities of practice that you can step into with a community. And if you've only done a couple of them, you have like, you know, the rest of your life together to keep working through all of those. And so let me encourage you to grab that and to make use of those things. We, we truly believe that the the act of formation, as, as Jesus forms our spirits around him and following him, it's not just knowledge. Knowledge is only a small part of what we need, and part of what we often miss is the practice of the way of Jesus, and so these practice guides are designed to help you step into that. So today, we're at the end of the community series, so I'm going to squeeze into the time we have left everything we haven't said about community so far. So everybody ready for that? You pumped? Some of you are looking scared. I'm kidding. A little bit. All right. So I want to start with a um, an advertisement. You maybe have seen this advertisement before. Life or living without limits. The makers of Jeep want you to no longer have any limits in the way that you live, but experience the fullness of life because um, you are you own a Jeep. If they truly didn't have limits, and if I could be sitting in traffic on Route 30, go up in the air and fly over top of traffic. I, too, would buy a Jeep. But I don't think that's the kind of limits they're talking about. Uh, so living without limits. This, this whole idea we see throughout our culture a bunch. So I'm going to throw just a couple things that you might have seen on uh, Facebook or social media in some way. Just uh, messages that are out there in our culture. Let's see the next one. You are confined only by the walls you build yourself. Ooh, that's like catchy, right? Like you get that? Like, that? like the walls that are around you are your own walls, so break out of them so you can be free. That sounds like super cool, right? Or this next one, this is my favorite. Don't tell me the sky's the limit. There are footprints on the moon. I saw that this week and kind of giggled a little bit. I thought that was, that was fun. Um, or, or this one, the only limits in life are the ones you make. There's this culture around us that has a, a not-so-subtle message to us that says uh, it, that limits are confining and real joy, real life, the fullness of life is found when we don't limit ourselves. When, when we don't have boundaries, we can press into the fullness of life. And this isn't just a, a culture-surrounding thing. This is certainly a church thing. Uh, so uh, look at this one. Uh, I'm a citizen of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a child of a king with no limitations. So you read that and you think, like, yeah, 
Um, you would have trouble exegeting that, by the way, um, if you were going to try to put some verses to it. You might go to some place like Philippians chapter 4, where it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which 95% of the time when that's quoted, it's quoted out of context, but we're really good at quoting out of context, so no big deal. Don't worry about that. Uh, so th there's this wrestling, right, that says, like, uh, we, I can do anything. Like, I, I love Jesus, and I'm an American, and so I can go just live in any way that I want and do whatever I want, and that's freedom. That's where real joy, real life is found. Now, I want you to contrast that with two other images. About 20 years ago, Amanda and I found ourselves sitting in our living room, and there was this six-month-old child on the floor doing what six-month-olds do, which is nothing, like yeah, like that was it. Like she, she was just kind of moving around. Because, you know, when they're six, they don't, six months old, they'd like eat and poop, and that's pretty much it. And so she was doing, I mean, maybe she was doing both. I don't know, whatever. She was doing that. And we were sitting around, and I remember so clearly saying to Amanda, what did we used to do before this? <laughs> like, there used to be, I think we used to have a life. I just don't remember what it was. Like, I, I think we used to do stuff. There is literally nothing more limiting to your life than having children. And all the parents just said amen, right? Like, yeah, that's right. Like, it's the way, it's the way it goes. The, the, the greatest limitations you can place on yourself is having children. Immediately following that is an image that I go back to a couple years before that image, where Amanda and I stood at an altar, and we promised one another that we would be faithful to one another for the rest of our lives which by definition meant there were millions of other people that I was not going to be able to spend the rest of my life with, right? Like by definition, marriage is a limit. By definition, having children limits us. And yet many of us would say some of the greatest joys of our life come through those limits. So we have this cultural message, no limits, break off all the limits. And we have this reality that we feel of, yeah, but some of my deepest joys come through limits. Within the church, I could pull dozens of examples, and so I'm going to speak in general rather than in specific. There's a movement happening where there are lots of people who are prominent Christians, whether leaders in the church or leaders in uh, areas where they're serving the church, who are in a, a journey that they call deconstructing faith. And the idea of this deconstruction is that they're moving away from the lordship of Jesus. And when you listen to them talk, they'll say some version of, um, I, I just wasn't fulfilled. I, I was doing this thing and I just wasn't finding fulfillment. I wasn't finding joy. Which is far less of a critique of Jesus than it is on the gospel that we preach. Because that is betraying the fact that we've preached a gospel of human flourishing, not a gospel of the lordship of Jesus. The lordship of Jesus is by definition a limit, and it's in the midst of that limit we find joy. Dr. Alan Noble has a book coming out in uh, just a few weeks. Uh, the, the book is called You Are Not Your Own, and uh, he makes a very provocative statement at the beginning of the book. He says this, if everyone in America started attending church, I doubt any of the major issues facing society would be resolved. I don't know what you immediately feel about that. I, I heard that and I was provoked, which is what he was trying to do, right? I, I felt like this sense of, ugh. And then I thought about it. And if you take just a couple minutes to think about it, 
and you're honest, you probably with me would say, that's probably right. In fact, I would go as far as to say, if everyone in America started attending church, not only would the major issues not be resolved, they might be worse. I think it's fair to say that at the very least, the church in America is equally as responsible for the problems as for the resolution of the problems. And so what's going on? What's broken about the community of faith where being a part of the community of faith doesn't bring resolution but at times even makes it worse? Well, the good news is this is not new. This is something that has been a part of the church for centuries. In fact, um, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians is going to compare and contrast two different ways of engaging community. I'm going to Uh, I'm going to frame them around the idea of a community that is based on preference versus a community that's based on commitment. So I want you to listen through that lens to the beginning of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm going to ask you to do it a little bit differently this morning. I want you to listen to the words, but I also want to encourage you not to follow along in your own Bibles, but rather to watch. Daryl's going to come, and he's not just going to read for us, but he's also going to sign for us uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, and we'll get an opportunity to see as well as hear. I'd like to explain to you, uh, could you imagine driving here this morning with everyone going to church? I think you all will be using sign language, not the same as me. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and have been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God. To declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive you. But just as we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. So we speak, not pleasing man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is our witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or others, sorry, nor do we, whether from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you 
like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but of ourselves. Because we had become very dear to us. Amen. Thank you, Daryl, for sharing yourself with us as well. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we hear and see and engage this truth, we pray that it would settle into our hearts, that this wouldn't just be an idea, but it would become a part of us and it would change the way that we live among one another. And so God, would you now take your word and speak it deeply into our hearts? May my words come from you alone. May the words that come from my flesh fall to the ground and be forgotten, but may the words that come from your spirit remain. God, may they penetrate our hearts, change us, so that we would be more like you, and that we would be a community that impacts the community around us. And so God, shape us according to your will and into your image, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want to start by looking at our culture and the culture of Thessalonica and uh, this idea of a culture of preference. What's it look like when we engage a culture of preference? And then I want us to look into the idea of the value of commitment. What's it look like to shift from preference to commitment and what's that value look like? And then finally, the model of commitment that we're given. So a culture of preference, uh, of the value of commitment, and ultimately the model of commitment that we're given. So we'll start with the culture of preference. Uh, church culture over the past several centuries have, has shifted in a pretty dramatic way, uh, particularly in the West. So uh, certainly in the U.S., but really throughout Western countries, uh, the culture is increasingly a culture where commitment is actually a negative term, not a positive term. We, we tend to be a commitment-averse people, and instead we tend to build communities around preference. It's part of what happens when you have a hundred different churches that you can choose from in an area, or more than that here in this area. Lots and lots of different options. Preference becomes cent- central to what it means to be the community of faith. There's a guy named A.J. Swoboda who wrote a book called Subversive Sabbath. As a side note, if I can ever change my name, I'm changing my name to Swoboda. I think that's an awesome name. Um, A.J. Swoboda is actually quoting a philosopher, a Polish philosopher. Talk about a great name. His name is Zygmunt Bauman. Zygmunt Bauman. I'm going to name a kid that. Josiah, you're now Zygmunt Bauman. All right. as he, as he quotes Bauman, he's talking about uh, different kinds of communities, and he, he lists them as peg communities and ethical communities. So listen to the way he, he talks about it. Peg communities are communities forged by disconnected spectators around a mutually loved experience like a rock concert or a sporting match. So that, that's the peg, the rock concert or the sporting match, and, it, and people gather around that. Their participation is a feeling or a sense around something shared. Now, in contrast, ethical communities, in stark contrast, are long-term commitments that are marked by the giving up of rights and service. 
In short, ethical communities are built on relationships of responsibilities. So, so let me illustrate. Um, I'm a Cleveland Browns fan, some of you know that. Um, that's why I am so good at perseverance and long-suffering, because I've done this for a really, really long time. Um, pe- people who are Cleveland Browns fans uh, tend to commiserate around the shared experience of being terrible. Uh, we're really good at that. And, and you, you kind of opt in or out of that, depending on how long you can make it, right? Because it's just like, if you're gonna be a Browns fan, it's, it's like, like the, everybody says, the Browns are gonna be good this year, but you can tell real Browns fans, because we're like, no, they're not, no, no. It looks like that, but something's gonna happen. Don't worry, they're, they're gonna be terrible. They'll probably get beat this afternoon. That's the way it works. And Browns fans either stay in around that shared experience, or they decide, you know what, I'm gonna be a Tom Brady fan, he wins everything anyway, so I'm just gonna switch over. You know, and you'd like drop the Browns and go somewhere else and just kind of follow Tom Brady around, because that's the way you win, right? You wanna be a winner. That's the, that's the opting in and out, that's a, that's a peg community. Or if, if sports isn't your thing, um, if you are reading a novel, and you wanna be part of a book club that is reading that novel, that's the shared experience, that's the peg, you're connected to that book club, that could be a really vital and rich uh, discussion group, but you get to the end of the novel and then the leader of the discussion group says, now that we finish that novel, we're gonna, we're gonna switch to a book by Zygmunt Bauman on philosophy, and you're like, yeah, I'm out, I'm done, right? Like, cause that's not where you're at, right? So that's, a, that's an opt-in or opt-out community, it's a peg community. In contrast to that, um, Amanda and I got married almost 24 years ago. Um, in almost 24 years, we have become very different people over time. So like, I've been married to at least three different people because she keeps changing. It's the same person, but she just keeps changing. I, in fairness, she's been married to about 10 different people, poor woman, like I just like keep changing. She's glad I'm no longer designing women's handbags, but you know, it's just this, this thing, we just keep changing. But we're committed not to who we were, we're not, we're not like in as long as you don't change. We're committed to one another over the, the time as we change, right? So you're committed not based on a, a bunch of factors that if they change, then you're out, but you're committed at a much deeper level than that, a, a commitment that is giving up rights and serving one another. Same thing with my children. So I'm committed to loving and serving my children even when they're super annoying, right? It's just the way it works. Yeah. Thumbs up from you, that's right. Yeah, and, and I, I do that certainly in the hopes that someday they won't be annoying, but even if they are, I'm still gonna love and serve them, right? That's, that's the way it works. And so those, that's an ethical community. So ethical communities are built around commitment to one another that's far deeper than the, the, the shared experience that we have in common. Now the question is, what are churches? Is the church community a peg community or an ethical community? Because we immediately just think, well, ethical sounds better, so therefore it must be an ethical community. But, but think, think more deeply about it. Is a church committed to the shared experience, and when that experience changes, that community changes? Or is the church committed to one another as we change, even as it relates to that shared experience over a period of time? Swoboda, again, uh, talks about the church this way. The church is the church that Christ builds, not our shared interests. And we are called to live in covenant community where we live and die for each other. A peg community is a place we go to feel alive. An ethical community, a place we go to die. Now that's fascinating because our language around church 
is all about being alive, right? I, I come in because it, my needs are met and I flourish. There's this sense of joy, this sense of life that's in me. But that's not how Jesus talked about church. Jesus talked about church by saying, if anyone's to come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. If anyone wants to gain his life, he's going to lose it. And anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. This idea that the church is intended to be an ethical community is pushed back on by the fact that our churches are by and large peg communities. Our churches are by and large places where as long as we uh, have a shared experience and we uh, have our preferences met, we're connected to one another. But when those preferences are no longer met, that connection drops. And that's been happening for years. Communities tend to be places where we look at one another and think, how can you help me? Like think about the language we use e even in like literal community. If somebody wants to spend time with you this week, what's the lens through which you filter that request? Something like, would it help me to meet with that person? Would it be worth my time to meet with that person? If someone says, hey, your, your community group's meeting, I'd like to be a part of your community group, how do you filter that? Would, that? would that person or that couple be good for our community? These are preference-based ways of looking at the world. And lest you feel like I'm just pushing on you, pastors are the worst at this. Like, pastors are terrible, because we look at people immediately and think, ooh, they could fill that need, they could fill that need, and somebody needs to get in the nursery. Like, you could do it, you go to the nursery, right? Like, pastors immediately think of people as ways to fill in gaps within the organization. This is a preference-based commitment, a preference-based community. It, it's all about what we can get. Well, in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul is pushing back on that accusation. Paul has planted the church in Thessalonica, and then he is now left, and he's planting churches in other places, and the word on the street in Thessalonica is that Paul planted that church out of selfish ambition, out of his own, uh, his own selfish motives. That he had, uh, like others that came into that town, he had been trying to gain something from them. And so Paul lays out for them what it looks like to be a preference-based community and says, this has not been true of me. So um, if you go down to verse 5, Paul says this, We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So Paul's listing three, uh, three markers of a preference-based community. See if any of these ring true with your experience. He says, first of all, preference-based communities are grounded in flattery. So I, lo I love the sign for flattery. It was like it's got a, a finger, and then it's like this, this like lathered on, right? It's like so. Uh, flattery is, by its definition, uh, words of encouragement or edification that may be true, but the, the reason for those words is some kind of uh, underlying manipulation. So you're, you're speaking those edifying words not to edify, but to gain something from it. So like the classic example is, Mom, you look beautiful today. Could I have $50? Right? Like that's, that's, that's flattery. It may be that mom does look beautiful indeed, but your goal is not to affirm. Your goal is to get 50 bucks, right? And so it's like there, there's a, a, an underlying motive that's there. And so Paul says, I didn't come like that. I didn't come just building you up in order to have selfish motives. I didn't come 
greedy for gain. So this would be any kind of material gain that's coming from the community. And so at its, at its rawest form, it's somebody who comes into a community in order to raise money for their thing. Like, I, I need support, so therefore I'm going to plug into this community because it looks like y'all got money. So I'm going to come in here and connect with you in order to gain something. But it's not just financial. Greed can take a lot of different forms. It can say, greed can be, I'm going to come and receive all of the good parts of this community without ever meaning to, intending to, commit to this community, to be a part of this community, to serve this community. I'm simply going to receive from this community. And what Paul says is fascinating. He, he says, I didn't come as a pretext for greed. God is witness. Like, like what he's saying is, you were there when I planted this church. You, you experienced me coming, and you know that's not how I was. You know I wasn't flattering you. You know I wasn't trying to gain any. I was working so that I didn't take anything from you. You, you know that my heart was to serve you, to give to you. And, and finally, he, he lists the third way of, uh, of a preference-based community. Nor did we seek glory from people, people-pleasing. The, the idea of a preference-based community is I'm so concerned about what you think about me, I will do anything to maintain you thinking that way about me. So that means if I have to lie about it, I'll lie. If that means when I tell the story, I have to tell it a certain way and leave out certain things and add in other things, I'll do that in order for you to think well of me. A, a preference-based community is one that's grounded in flattery, greed, and people-pleasing. And what Paul says is, I did not do that among you. That wasn't the kind of community that I created, that I set up in Thessalonica. But if we're honest about our experience in church, a lot of us would say, I, I just thought that was normal. <laughs> that's, the way, that's just the way communities act. And that would be understandable because the culture we live in is so incredibly grounded in a preference-based community that it's hard to even imagine something different. Like for instance, one out of every two marriages statistically ends in divorce. And so that means with a group like this, almost all of us have either experienced personally divorce, have been children's of, children of a divorced parents, or have close connections, family members and really close friends who've gone through divorce. And divorce, at the core level, there's all kinds of reasons behind this very complex thing, but at the core level, there's a, a, a choice made by one party or the other where preference is greater than commitment. At, at the core... That's a decision that gets made. And we then, all of us, in various ways, experience the fallout of that. We're coming to the holiday season. Everybody's favorites, right? We're coming to the holidays, so you get Thanksgiving and Christmas, and so many of you um, will get to experience three or four Thanksgivings and three or four Christmases because you have to balance all of the different people in your life who want to celebrate in a certain way, and so you have to go from one to another to another because they can't figure out how to engage it together. Some of you are starting to hyperventilate already. It's still a couple months. Relax. You're going to be okay. It's going to be fine. But that, that's, that's all grounded in preferences greater than community, right? It's all grounded in this idea that this is the way I live. This is what I do. Politics is tricky, but if you, depending on your age, uh, have memories of, of politics in your formative years, it's likely either a Watergate scandal in the 70s, or the Iran-Contra hearing in the 80s, or the Clinton impeachment hearing in the 90s, 
or the weapons of mass destruction that were not in the aughts. And I'm not going to get into the last 10 years because that's when I'm going to get in trouble. But um, let, let me just simply say we've gotten to the place where we so expect politicians to lie to us that when politicians are exposed as lying, our response is, eh, that's what happens. Like, our, our expectation is that the public community would be a place of flattery, greed, and of people-pleasing. Like, we wouldn't, we wouldn't expect it to be any other way. Like, that's just normal life. And that's in the midst of the church. So I could list scandal after scandal after scandal. It seems like there's a new one every week or two of a public Christian leader who's fallen from grace in some way or another because preference is greater than commitment. The number one religion podcast in the world right now is called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it's all about a church that literally went from thousands of people to nothing because of a preference-based community that was supreme. So what do we do with that? I mean, this is the, this is the air we breathe. This is the world we live in. And so Paul says, that's not what I did, but we would be forgiven for expecting that that's the world we live in because it's the world we live in. But he says it doesn't have to be that way. So if you go just a verse down in verse seven, Paul says, actually there's a, there's a different way to live. And I would summarize the way he lays it out as a culture not of preference, but a community of commitment. He, he says this, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. So Paul lists three things in contrast. A community of preference is all about flattery and greed and people-pleasing. But a, a community of commitment, Paul says, is first gentle. So what he's saying is, you remember when I came among you. I didn't come in just like bursting in and crashing everything and telling you this is the way you have to change. I got to know you. I listened to you and gently shaped the, the image of Jesus in you. I was gentle as I engaged you. And, and, and he talks about this image of a nursing mother, and then he uses a word that in English is translated affectionately desirous of you. It's the only time in the New Testament that Greek word is used, and uh, most believe that it ties back also to the nursery setting. Basically what Paul's saying is, um, I, I allowed my heart to get so close to you and your heart to get so close to me that they kind of melded together, that I started to be shaped by you and you started to be shaped by me because of the love that we had for each other. And then finally, Paul says, uh, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves as well, our own lives as well. It, we were ready is uh, not a strong enough translation. It's literally much more like we were, we were eagerly pleased. We were excited to share not just the gospel with you, but our lives. There was this drive in us to give ourselves to you. So Paul says a community of commitment is grounded in gentleness, a concern for one another, love being shaped by one another, and generosity instead of greed, a giving of self for one another. The sense of us uh, pouring ourselves out for one another. Now that all sounds great, but if we're going to be honest, there's a couple, uh, a couple immediate barriers that probably come to your mind, particularly if you've been around the block a few times. 
A community of commitment, wonderful. But as soon as I commit to you or you commit to me, we're opened up to be hurt by one another. Just the way it is. I can't give myself to you, you can't give yourself to me, particularly in a culture of preference, and not potentially, at least, be hurt. Because if I'm giving myself to you, I'm committing deeply to you, but you're entering into a culture of preference, what's going to happen is at some point down the line, your preference is not going to be met, and you're going to walk out on me, and I'm going to be hurt by that process. And so the, the response that we tend to have to that is to back up and not engage. But that may be worse than the problem itself. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, makes a profound statement. He says this, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. What Lewis is saying is our response to the risk of love, to the risk of commitment, to, to the risk of really caring for one another is because we're afraid, we pull back, and the response is our heart hardens up in a way that is actually far worse than the potential of being hurt. See, because we're afraid to get hurt, we tend to pull back, but in that pulling back, our heart shrivels. And Lewis's point is that the solution is worse than the problem itself. So one of the challenges is when we commit to one another, we open ourselves up to being hurt. The other one is a really simple one. Community is a commitment. You are limiting yourself when you engage in a community. It's just the way it works. Like when you choose to commit to something, you are decommitting from all of the other things that might happen when that something's happening, right? Um, our culture has a great term for this. We have a culture of FOMO, have you heard that? Uh, fear of missing out. So the, the fear of missing out culture is why, for instance, to just use a random example, we can never do signups at York Alliance in a way that's effective, right? So I'll, I'll put a sign up out for something that's like a, on a Saturday a month from now, sign up, and then we can plan accordingly. And you're all like, oh yeah, somebody should do that. And all of you sign up the Friday before the Saturday of the event. And you do that, uh, if you sign up at all, you do that because something good might come up that Saturday. I don't know. I mean, maybe if all I got is this, then I'll do it. But I don't know. I mean, something good might happen, right? Like, that's the way it works. Like, when you commit to anything, you're decommitting from all of the other things that might happen. So if you commit, I'll make a promise to you. If you commit to a community group, so you have 10 or 12 people that are going to meet week after week on a Monday night, you're going to commit to that community group. I will guarantee you, personally guarantee you, that 90% of the Mondays from that point forward, you will have something else that you would rather do than go to the community group. Every time. It totally happens all the time. You're like, like, I'm in for this community group. And the first time you love it, and by the second week, you're like, why did I do this? Like, what in the world? Like, well, there's so many things I could be doing right now. Like, I don't have time for this, right? This is the way community works. When you commit, 
you are necessarily limiting yourself. I'm gonna show you a quote by Bill Hybels. Um, if you know anything about Bill Hybels, it's irony that I'm using his quote in the sermon, but anyway, if you don't, that's fine. You can Google it later. Um, Hybels says this, tell me how to show love without spending time, energy, or money, and I will gladly sign up. Tell me that love requires sacrifice, however, and I become reluctant to commit. That's the challenge. Really living in a culture of commitment, committing to one another, truly loving one another, will always cost us. And there will be many times where it feels like the cost is greater than the reward. And so a bunch of you are saying, if you're trying to sell me on this, it's not working right now. <laughs> like, what in the so why in the world would you do it? Why would we commit to one another if we know that we're opening ourselves up to be hurt, if we know that we're limiting ourselves in a way that we will regret at some point down the line, why in the world would we commit? And while I could talk about that for the next couple days, I'm just gonna try to summarize briefly for you this way. We commit because God has committed himself to us. We're a community of people who are formed around the commitment of God to us. And I could walk you through that in a ton of different ways, but I'm going to just tell you a couple Old Testament stories in order to try to get your mind around this. Back in Genesis chapter 12, there was a guy named Abram. Abram lived in what was effectively a metropolitan community um, where he was relatively wealthy and uh, doing pretty well. And as far as we understand, he had nothing to do with the God of the Bible. He didn't know who, who God was. But he heard a voice, and that voice called to him and said, Leave behind your land and your people and all that you have. Go to the place that I'm going to show you. And when you obey, I will bless you. I'll bless you so much that every nation of the earth will be blessed through you. And I will multiply your family so that there are more people than stars in the universe as part of your family which was fascinating to Abram because he was an old dude married to an older lady and they had never had any kids. They couldn't have kids. So he's like, okay, well, we'll see. And he did it. He did it. He left. And as he left, he goes to the promised land, to the place that God shows him. And a couple chapters later in Genesis chapter 15, there's this image. Um, so God shows up again to Abram and God speaks to Abram. And he says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you, and I'm going to multiply your family so it's greater than the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. And then he says to Abram, I want you to go get some animals, and I want you to cut them in half, and I want you to lay them out in a big aisle way. Now, we immediately say, ew, because that's nasty, right? But this is, this is part of the ancient Near East covenant practice. This is what it meant to enact a covenant in Abram, Abram's day. So just imagine, it's like this aisle down the middle, and you have like half an animal here, and half an animal here, and half an animal here, and half an... Don't imagine too much, because it's really nasty, but just imagine. Uh, this is all kind of laid out, and what was going to happen is that both parties who are making this covenant are going to pass through those animals, and what they're going to be saying to one another is, if I don't fulfill my part of the covenant then may this that's happened to the animals happen to me. May I be split in two and may you walk right through my blood. Ew. And so Abram chops up the animals and lays them out. 
And as he gets ready to walk through to fulfill his part of the covenant, he falls into a deep sleep or a trance. He has a vision. And in that vision, he sees these animals that he's laid out. But instead of him walking through them, there's this smoking fire pot and torch that shows up, representing the presence of God himself. And he passes through the animals and comes back again. And then as he pauses at the point where Abram should be walking through, God again passes through the animals and comes back again. And Abram wakes up. And he unmistakably knows what God just said, which is that I am committed to you, not based on your obedience, but based on me alone. I will fulfill your half of the covenant and my half of the covenant. Now, what's incredible is that because that happened in Genesis chapter 15, you're here in 2021 in a, a gym in the, the bottom part of the church facility. <laughs> like, you, we're here because of that. But I want you to think what you know about the Israelite people in the Old Testament. Like, I don't know how much you know the history of the Israelite people, but I just have a simple question for you. Was that the best choice for God? <laughs> like, didn't he have anybody better? Because these people are a mess. Like, these people are a train wreck. Like, they, at some point in time, like, for me, when I'm reading through somewhere around the beginning of Joshua to the middle of Judges, I just think, if I was God, I'd just, like, wipe them people out and start again, right? Like, like that's, these people are crazy. Like, why in the world would God commit himself to these people? And yet he does. He faithfully walks with them. And we could talk through all the covenants. There's a ton there. We don't have time for that. But if I fast forward a bunch, that same covenant language shows up again when Jesus comes as God himself to be among his people. And near the end of his life, he's gathered his disciples, the closest people to him, around him. And he holds up a cup. And if you remember his language, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, part of what he was saying was that he was committing himself to this group of people. That's the covenant that he's talking about. Certainly, there's a re-upping of commitment that's happening here. But the other thing that was unmistakable to these people who had walked with Jesus through his uh, teaching and heard all that he said was that Jesus was saying to them, I am the God who made this promise to Abraham and I'm about to walk through the animals. I'm about to walk through the blood that must be spilled in order to fulfill your half of the commitment. Why do we commit to one another? Because God has committed himself to us. We exist as a community because of the commitment of God. It's fascinating because when the writer of the Hebrews talks about that act of sacrifice, it's described as, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. We think of commitment as limiting, and we think of living without limits as the pathway to joy in the fullness of life. And yet what the writer of the Hebrews says is, it's actually in the limit, the, the sacrifice of Jesus, that he found the fullness of joy. The case I want to make for you is that committing to a community, not based around the peg, but based around our commitment to one another, 
as people, as we journey together in various stages of life, committing to the community is actually the pathway to joy. Yes, it opens us up to be hurt. Yeah, there's a limit that comes with it. But it's so worth it. About 40 years ago, there was an article written by a guy named Lewis Smedes in Christianity Today. Uh, the entire article is really excellent. Um, I'll, I'll commend it to you. I don't have time to uh, cite even most of it. Um, it's called Controlling the Unpredictable. And it's really all around this idea of, of committing to one another, being a culture of promise, committing to one another. But, but the way that Smedes challenges us back 40 years ago could have happened last week. Listen to the way that, that he says it. Perhaps the church cannot be a force for redemptive change in our throwaway society until those of us who belong to it renew our commitment to promise in the society of the promise-making Lord. God is, par excellence, in the character that he reveals, the one who creates for us a new past and a new future by forgiving and promising. As I see it, these are subtle miracles of human freedom. The neglect of them in our day may hasten disaster. Renewal of our power to practice them may yet save us. So if that language is tough for you to get your head around, what Smeeds is saying is this, that our society around us is a culture of preference. That the world around us is polarized and uh, full of tribes and brokenness division because of the, the fabric of preference within our culture. And if we are to be a community of the promise-keeping God, the society of the God who keeps his promises, it begins with us saying, we are going to love, forgive, and commit to one another. We must be the people who push back against the brokenness of society through the community that God creates in us. And that means, by definition, we don't all agree with each other. Like, that's the whole point. A, a community, an ethical community is saying, I'm committed to you regardless of whether you agree with me or not. In fact, the whole point of my commitment to you is not based on the fact that you agree with me or disagree with me. It's based on the fact that God's put us together and we're in this journey together. It's when we commit to one another that we begin to reflect the beauty of Jesus to the world around us. And we do that not through our own strength. You don't have it in you and neither do I. We do that because God has committed to us. And as we receive his power, we're able to love one another. So let me go back to Dr. Noble's quote. If everybody in America came to church, there'd be a traffic jam, you're right, Daryl. Um, and if everybody in America came to church, we wouldn't solve any of the problems of the society. In fact, we may make them worse. But what if everybody in America sacrificed themselves for the other, lived in a community of commitment? Well, then I think we start to see some problems fixed, maybe all of them. And you may say, well, that's crazy. Like, all of America is not going to do that. And you're right. That's not going to happen. But could a couple hundred people in York, Pennsylvania do that? I think that's possible. And as we become a community, not based around what I want or what I can get, not based around what I hope to gain, but rather based around who you are and what it means for us to commit to one another for the long term, to journey together 
through the difficulties into joy, then we become a testimony to the world around us. And so at the end of this practice series on community, my goal for you is to hear the call that Jesus makes to us. The call that's not earn it. The call that's not measure up. The call that is follow me. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come. They're going to lead us as we respond. And I just want to walk you through the call of Jesus that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks. Jesus says to us, follow me, not based on believing the right things or behaving in the right ways, but simply because you're willing. And so some of you may be sitting there saying, I don't know if I can, if I can do this. I don't know that I'm the right person for this. Jesus says, all you have to do is be willing and if you're willing, you're welcome. You're invited in. Community is built around those who are willing. We're called to honor one another. In fact, Paul says, outdo one another in honor. And all that means is that we would recognize the image of God that's been placed in one another, and we would honor that image. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that that person is to be, um, is to be worshipped. But it does mean that there are beautiful, redeemable characteristics of each one of us and that we honor those things in one another. We uh, choose to lift up and exalt those things within one another. We're called to be a family. We're called to be people who commit to one another in such a way that when we go through difficult things, we're honest with one another about it. We invite people into the solutions of the problems that we have rather than fall back to people that we're related to by blood but maybe don't have all of the other connections with. And instead, we say, this community is going to be my support system. I'm going to choose that. I'm going to, this is going to be my family. We receive the love of God that he's given to us. And that love flows through us to one another and to the world around us. So that we would invite each other into the dance of the Trinitarian God. This beautiful movement that's been happening throughout eternity that you and I are invited into. And we do all of that by committing to each other, not based on what we want, but based on who he is and what he's done for us. So you may be at any one of those points along the way. I'm simply going to ask that you ask the Spirit, what's my next step? For some of you, it may be really stepping into the community for the first time. And you just need to hear, if you're willing, you're invited. And there's some of you that are sitting here and saying, I've done all the other stuff, but I'm not really committed to the other people's best. I'm committed to me. And God's invitation is for you to commit to us and for us to commit to you. So wherever the next step is for you, I'm going to invite you to uh, take some time to wrestle with that as the Lord speaks to you. I'm going to pray for us. And then as Jacob and team leads us, we'll respond to him. Jesus, thank you for your love for us. We don't deserve it. I, we, we look and we intentionally feel like, man, there's probably better choices. Just like the Israelites, there are probably better ways for, for you to do this, and yet you've chosen us, and we're grateful. And so, God, we receive the love that you have given to us, and out of the love that you give to us, we seek to love the others in the world around us. And so teach us, Jesus. Help us to be the community that you call us to be. We pray in your name. Amen.